0: or very destabilizing things have just happened. So the price of oil pick up uh, about 20% off the lows, 15, 15, 20% off the lows. Uh, You had the Bank of Japan widen out their yield curve control on on JGBs. Uh, You had the US uh, get downgraded. Uh, And then you had um, the US Treasury come out and update their borrowing estimates. Uh, to note that they're going to borrow almost $1.9 trillion in the back half of this year. And when you put all of these things together, uh, they are a very toxic combination that we wrote at the time, and still believe, are likely going to drive global capital costs up potentially nonlinearly, in other words, Treasury yields, global sovereign bond yields up non-linearly uh, at a time when um, uh, <laughs> they, the, the world really can't afford that.
1: Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. America is currently running an annual deficit at 9% of GDP. That's an extremely high percentage historically. We've practically never run a deficit this high with unemployment this low. We're essentially running a wartime deficit in a peacetime economy. And a big part of this deficit is the ballooning interest costs we're paying on servicing our national debt. As interest rates have spiked from near zero at the start of last year to over five and a quarter today. And it doesn't help that tax receipts are falling versus last year. As a country, we're bringing in less income and spending more on debt interest. Today's guest, Luke Roman, has been loudly warning that this dynamic is resulting in a sovereign debt crisis, not just in the U.S., but in many other major nations around the world that are in a similar boat. What could such a crisis mean and where are we in its timeline? To find out, let's hear from Luke himself. Luke, thanks so much for joining us today.
0: Thanks for having me back on, Adam. It's great to be here.
1: Hey, always a pleasure. Lots of questions for you here, Luke. Let's jump right in. But to kick it off at a high level, let me ask the question I like to ask you every time you're on the program. What's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets?
0: I I think the best way to frame the assessment is something we wrote about for clients. Uh, Three weeks ago, give or take, which is that four destabilizing things, four very destabilizing things have just happened. So you yeah, the price of oil pick up uh about 20% off the lows, 15, 15, 20% off the lows. Uh, you had the Bank of Japan widen out their yield curve control on, on JGBs. Uh, you had the US uh get downgraded, uh, and then you had um the U.S. Treasury come out and update their borrowing estimates uh, to note that they're going to borrow almost $1.9 trillion in the back half of this year. And when you put all of these things together, uh, they are a very toxic combination that we wrote at the time and still believe are likely going to drive global capital costs up potentially non-linearly in other words treasury yields global sovereign bond yields up non-linearly at a time when um uh, (laughs) they the, the world really can't afford that and so i think that is ultimately going to be very destabilizing it's going to bring us back Or the regime of what we saw April through October of 2022, which was dollar up, everything else down, gold, gold flattish, everything else down with a potential kicker of oil up. Uh, So a very um, tricky environment uh, that I think will ultimately accelerate and pull forward the Fed being forced back into QE or Treasury being forced into uh, liquidity. uh, moves despite rising oil prices and rising rates and and accelerating sequential inflation so it's 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 going to be an interesting fall winter and into next year i think
1: okay so what i hear you saying is it's uh, nothing but sunshine and roses ahead
0: <laughs> <laughs> if you own oil and gold you might uh, you might see it as such but uh if you own dollar maybe you'll see it as such but other than that mm, it can be a little tricky
1: Okay, um, we're gonna, we're gonna get to discuss this in depth, but just just to pull in a preview for folks. when you talk about Fed having to step in QE, maybe cutting rates, that type of stuff in response to this toxic cocktail that you just mentioned, um, do you have a general timing for that? Is that something you see happening by the end of the year? Is that something that's in 2024 later?
0: Well, we know Treasury's coming in with Treasury buybacks in 2024, right? So uh, they say that's not going to be liquidity adding. They say that's going to be relatively small. Let's see. Uh, so that would be, you know, that was something I got wrong last year, which is I said that the Fed would be forced into liquidity uh, to resume liquidity injections by the end of third quarter 2022. And that was wrong. Uh it was wrong because Treasury did it. It wasn't the Fed. Treasury, right. Fed kept tightening. Treasury yeah. loosened.
1: Sorry, let, let, let me interrupt you there, because th- this was exactly my next question for you. <laughs> Literally citing when you're on the program earlier in 2022, thought that uh the Fed would would be forced basically to, to have to stop the interest rate hikes by uh Q three of 2022, maybe even be forced to pivot. Um, so my my big question for you was gonna be what happened and and really back then, when you made that statement, we were under a 3% federal funds rate. Here we are today, fast forward a year later, basically, we're at a fed funds rate of 5.25%. How is the system still running at, at a cost <laughs> of capital this high, given the concerns that you had flagged a year ago?
0: Sure, uh, the answer is not very well, right? So like I was just saying, uh, The Fed didn't stop, but Yellen offset, more than offset QT by running down the Treasury General account late last year. Uh, In the fourth quarter of last year, uh, the dollar fell at a 40% annual rate. Uh, And all else equal weakening the dollar uh, keeps the system together. It adds liquidity to the system. It adds upward pressure to asset prices. Uh, It makes uh, FX hedged Treasury yields more attractive uh for foreign buyers to buy and so all of the things that we were seeing uh, that we thought would force the fed to pivot by the end of september basically forced the treasury pivot right around the end of september maybe maybe two weeks after so uh that weakness in the dollar from late september on um driven by yellen running down the tga in no small part uh, bought time for the system. Uh, the U.S. banking system uh, effectively saw severe strains in March, obviously. Uh, and the Fed, once again, Fed's got a great PR. You know, it's, it's, BTFP is not QE. You know, it, it, okay, great. They're growing their balance sheet again. They are effectively doing a soft form of yield curve control by writing up the value uh, that they will lend against treasuries relative to the market. They are basically capping treasury yields by BTFP. So uh, the Fed did get involved there. They have, uh, the BTFP numbers are still at near their highs. Uh, They have resumed, um, they, the Fed have resumed QT. And that then brings us into the the second quarter. So we have BTFP, liquidity injection, calm the system down. The banking system was breaking. And to be clear, it wasn't necessarily a banking system problem. It was a treasury market problem, which was exactly what we talked about. Um, It's a supply demand problem, it's a fiscal crisis and the banks were upside down. And so the Fed could have said, look, we're not gonna do anything. And if they wouldn't have done anything, SVB, great. Hey, Oprah, you had eight hundred million in unsecured deposits or whatever she had. Bye-bye, it's gone. Uh you know, billions of venture capital out there in California with you sitting at SVB. Bye-bye, it's gone. Oh, you got to lay people off and Inve- sorry, lay them off. Oh, you got to crash the housing market as all those people sell their homes, get have a job. Good. Lay them off. Now, I don't think that's what they should have done, but the Fed had that opportunity to do that. And you know, I've always said, we're not operating at Dow anymore. It's a switch off, on. There's no little saw. They want to stop inflation. That's what they needed to do. So we had the strains, they come in, they paper over a BTFP, etc. cetera. The second quarter, we get this, we run into the debt ceiling, which is wonderful because there's no issuance. The, 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 the area of the crisis, it's a supply demand problem in treasuries and the supply stops. So we, you know, that plus AI, where we get this sort of narrative of, hey, AI's, you know, gonna change the world. And I think it will ultimately change the world, but it isn't gonna change the world in the second quarter of 2023. And I think people probably got too negative. I think expectations got too negative relative um, to uh, what happened given that. And so you had sort of this rally, you had no issuance, everything kind of stayed contained. And then we passed the debt ceiling, we get into the third quarter, and we have these four destabilizing things. And I think a critical moment in this whole process was jo- June 1st, give or take, um, Go Rosen, uh, uh, Göring Rosenzweig came out, highlighted U.S. shale is starting to roll over, and it's going to roll over in the back half of this year. And so the Fed and and the White House, they can play all these games they want. They can't print oil. And so now oil prices are starting to rise on them, and these other issues are starting to hit. So I think that is sort of the the sequence of events that, you know, from from last fall where, yeah, um, they weakened the dollar, they bailed out the banks, there was no Treasury issuance for a, a good chunk of a quarter, and, you know, now all those things are going the other way. Here we are.
1: All right. Um, Great, great explanation. I'm I'm curious, just building off of what I said in the intro here of of how high of a deficit that we're we're running. Uh, You know, we've got the spending from the Inflation Reduction Act that's now finally coming into the mix as well. Um, But we are, you know, I think we currently have a 1.6 percent, sorry, 1.6 trillion deficit right now. Um, You just mentioned that the Treasury announces it's going to borrow like another two trillion in the second half of this year um I imagine just the general kind of uh excessive deficit spending also kind of helped buy some time it's sort of another form of of, of stealth liquidity out there in the system true
0: yeah it's it's helping to uh inject liquidity into uh you know, spending and in- liquidity into the system on some level. Um, you know, particularly in a time when there's there was no issuance on the other side of it,
1: right? In right. The second so, so I've I mentioned this a couple of times. I'd like to get your thoughts on it um, a couple of times recently on this channel. Um, so we we have the Fed jamming on the brakes, right? That's what it's trying to do to get inflation back down to two percent, right? We have the banking system uh, putting its foot on top of the Fed's. Foot there, continuing to press the, the brakes even harder. Banks are doing that because they're tightening lending standards, not necessarily because they care about inflation. They just they're fighting for survival. They just want to have less bad loans, right? Given their their fragility right now. But on the fiscal side of things, we're jamming on the gas, right? Like like, what are the? How long can that persist for before you start creating uh, undesirable consequences? Um, and to a certain extent, the, the Fed has got to be looking at the fiscal side of things and saying, guys, what the hell? <laughs> you're undoing everything I've been trying to do for the past year. Right. So can you comment on that mismatch right now between fiscal and monetary policies? It depends on
0: what side of the house you're on. Right. As to what's undesirable. Right. What's normal for the spiders, chaos for the fly. And so. When you hear the U.S. government saying we have these geopolitical goals or imperatives uh, in Europe with Russia, et cetera, when you hear the U.S. government say we need to move away from China, we need to reassure our productive capacity, uh, or we cannot produce shells in, to support an industrial war with a major power, uh, because our bay, our industrial base, has been so hollowed out over the last twenty-five years, uh, you need to spend. You need to inflate. You need industrial policy. You need all those things. All that fiscal that has to happen. So the DoD is like, "Hey, great, do it." Treasury is saying, "Hey, you know, I've got, you know, I need the strong dollar to try to place this paper." And the Fed's saying, "Hey." I need, you know, I need I I need low inflation because otherwise, you know, Jerome Powell's legacy is going to be destroyed. Um, and, And the Fed's credibility is going to be destroyed. Look, the last 30 years, the winners have been the Fed, Wall Street and China. Not the not America. DOD is like, listen, we can't fight a war. We're borrowing money from China to build weapons made in China, you know, with components made in China this this doesn't work and so it really comes down to you know the fed and treasury are trying to preserve the strong dollar for the primacy of the bond market it's no longer in the interest of america or if you if you want you you, you and i tweeted about this yesterday you can have one of two things you can have a strong dollar low inflation low rates in which case you are not going to be able to pursue the geopolitical policies that America is trying to pursue. Namely, the United States will need to buy components from China to build the weapons to encircle China if we have a strong dollar, if we have low inflation. If you think that's a bad thing, then guess what? The bond market has to get killed on a real basis in inflation adjusted terms, because what has to happen is We run 10, 12, 15% of GDP deficits, and the Fed makes noise and tries to tighten, blah, 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 until rates get too high. And once rates get too high, the Fed faces a choice. Dear Jerome Powell, do you want to keep raising rates and keep money tight and force the U.S. government to make 40 to 60% cuts now permanently, permanently to defense and entitlements because those are the only two things you can cut other than Treasury spending, to stop those deficits that matter, and nothing else matters. It's entitlements, interest, defense, in that order. So, Powell, do you think your legacy will be helped by cutting entitlements and by cutting defense tomorrow permanently by 40 to 60% which is what Stan Druckenmiller estimated needed to be cut in his presentation out at USC a few months ago? Or are you going to do your job in situations like this, the job that the DOD wants you to do, which is by the paper? Cap yields, do QE, finance it, and do what's best for America in the long run, rather than what's good for bonds in the short run, and good for Wall Street in the short run, and that's that's the decision. That's what's that's that's some version of that's going to play out over the next couple of years. You got to make a choice. So,
1: so where where does inflation and cost of living fit into all this? So in other words, you know, if the deficit spending keeps you know going on for as much as it is, um, that is inflationary, right? Mm-hmm um, the average person is feeling the pain pretty strongly right now. Um, it's a big part of what's driving Powell to protect his legacy. I don't want to be the Arthur Burns that just let inflation run wild, right? The administration has a, I, 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 I'm sure, you know, they want to please the defense industry and, and deal with some of the things that you were talking about, but at the same time, they want to get reelected, right? You know, they don't, they don't want to be going into the, the voter booth with inflation resurging, right? So, Yeah, there just seems to be so many cross-currents here. I don't really see anybody can kind of have their cake and eat it too, (laughs) no matter which policy they pursue. No, I mean, and it really
0: comes down to, look, for the last 40 years, bondholders and Wall Street and China won, and Washington, D.C. That's who got richer. And, And the working class and the middle class in America got poorer. And... We have to decide if we want to continue that to its natural terminus, which people in the Rust Belt of America can tell you is we can't buy anything, ain't from China, right? So that's the part I find that the coasts of this country don't recognize that, uh, in particular in the East Coast, that China can win. China has won in the middle part of this country. Um, and those parts of the country need to decide, do we wanna maintain the real value of our bonds? or do we want to actually compete? And the outcome to that, if they decide they wanna compete is that the, yes, it's gonna be wildly inflationary. Yes, if you own a lot of bonds, you're gonna go from wearing diamonds to wearing cubic zirconia to wearing Cracker Jack on a string. You know, you're know, you gonna go from eating filet mignon like you have for the last 40 years to eating dog food. Sorry, like it goes the other way. The flip side is the people that lost for the last 40 years, U.S. middle class, U.S. working class, uh, they're going to win, right? Quote unquote win. Yes, inflation is going to go up, but look, you know, everybody's got a 2.9% mortgage. If their wages go up 15% a year, are they winning or losing?
1: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America
0: NA, member FDIC.
1: All right, I'm going to want to dig into this more with you, but let's... um. Let's keep going through through this arc here. So, um, still staying at a relatively high level, you have, I think, for a good long while now, you know, beat the the drum of the global sovereign debt crisis, right? We're, we're basically, uh, you know, countries are getting to a point where the cost of servicing their massive piles of debts really become um, constraining, just for the general operation of of, of the nations themselves. Um, if I remember correctly, you said the U.S. Uh, what is it? Uh, it? It's either like you know, get get busy defaulting or get busy inflating. I think is what you said, right? If I'm remembering <laughs> something correctly. like
0: that, that sounds right. Yeah, from from Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we we've talked kind of about what's happening right now in this moment in time, but but zooming up to a very high level for a second where are we in the timeline uh, of your global sovereign debt crisis um you're you're from a family of baseball players you know kind of what inning are we in and and where do you where do you expect this to go probability wise both both US but uh, but also relative to the major other major powers yeah sure
0: uh, i would say we're probably in the 7th inning maybe the 8th inning wow it's um, so late okay and the reason i say that is is quietly In the first half of this year, fiscal first half, right? So uh, that is 4Q22, calendar 4Q22, calendar 1Q23. Those six months of the U.S. government's fiscal year, after, I mean, that would have been six months of tightening is the starting period of that, maybe seven of the Fed tightening. And with rates way lower than they are today, by the way. And before the effects of those tightening has really been felt, which is starting to be felt. US true interest expense entitlement and treasury spending was above treasury receipts. The US government, on a full year basis, after just the first six months of tightening, before all the effects really were felt and before the interest reset was fully done, was already in a position where the US government couldn't afford what's effectively its true interest expense out of tax receipts. You're done. And that's like, I'm fascinated to see people say, well, I want to buy long-term debt here. I, okay, great. But to me, long-term treasuries, long-term really any debt, it's like picking up nickels in front of a steamroller. I mean, you might get some and maybe it's maybe you can have a trade. I don't have an opinion on that. But you don't do well in this business long-term picking up nickels in front of a steamroller. Uh, the U.S. government can't make its interest payments without the Fed printing the money. Why get involved? And that's that's why I say we're in the seventh or eighth inning. Like that was that was uh, it's almost September, so that was six months ago. So yes, stocks are up in the second quarter. That'll buy you some time on the receipt side. Now, with that said, April May receipts were a friggin' disaster. So on a trailing twelve, excuse me, on a trailing three month basis, um, year over year, U.S. Treasury receipts were down twenty percent through May. Only been uh, I think three other times in the last 20, 30, last 40 years, they've been down 20% year over year. It All was- right. so, 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 Sorry yeah. to
1: interrupt, but I'm just curious, how much of that shortfall is because my state uh, has pushed out its tax uh, payments until below, I can't remember exactly when, but later this year?
0: Yeah, like October, that's gotta be a, a good chunk of it, right, so if you, I think California's 15% of payments, uh, so if you assume that California was flat year over year, which is a heroic assumption because California is very, um, uh, California's income is very asset price driven and asset it, prices had a disastrous 2022.
1: It's very true. Yep.
0: So if you make the heroic assumption that California was flat, which your budget would tell your own budget would tell you there's no friggin' way, uh, given what the deficit out there has done, uh, they would still be down five. Right. Okay. That would it would keep so it would have been down five. So it's probably down eight to ten. Uh with California. You will see a pickup a little bit later this year. But the the bigger point is, is that we also haven't seen the interest expense. Interest is going to keep resetting and right. keep resetting and keep resetting. Um and the more the long end goes up, receipts are gonna, you know, receipts are gonna fall. And we're in sort of a Mexican standoff on the housing market, right? Where people that are in 2.9% mortgages don't want to sell, blah, blah, blah. Those will, I don't know when, but that, you know, unless you get much lower rates, those will reset lower and tax receipts will keep. So you're, it's only the the one piece of good, two pieces of good news, California, you're going to have a one-time benefit, assuming they don't give you guys another break with these floods and stuff. And then number two uh, you did have you, you know markets are up year today and so all else equal if they can keep markets up uh that'll help that'll help as we go to next year but sort of everything else it's only gonna get worse
1: all right um and it's only going to get worse under current trajectory um. Now there's a lot of people just to your point about bonds, and we'll talk more specifically about bonds in a bit. But you know, on the bond side, they're saying, "Oh, I agree with you, Luke. Like it's going to get nasty, and uh, as soon as the Fed is able to, like once it feels like it's got inflation under control, um, it's going to pivot, right?" Um, or these high rates are going to, and, and lack of inflows, they're going to they're going to start causing some bigger systemic breakages that we've seen to date. And whatever inflation's at, Fed's going to say, "Ah, sorry, I got to I got to forget that battle for a bit. I got to save the system," mm-hmm. and we'll pivot. So, you know, I think the argument for people that are that are piling into the long bonds, which in, in your opinion right now is is going after nickels in front of the steamroller, they would say, and I'm not saying you have to agree with them, but I'd like to hear your response. They would say, "No, no, no. We just we know that the system." The higher rates are going to win at some point in terms of breaking the system, and the Fed's going to be forced to pivot. And that's why we're piling into the long bonds, because we want to ride the reduction in yields once the Fed starts buying.
0: The problem is oil's $85, and U.S. shale is rolling over. And U.S. shale has been 90% of global production for the last 10 years. Energy inflation will explode higher if they pivot. So yeah, I mean, you could probably make money doing it. They might they might be right, but like to me, it's such a suboptimal expression. I would much okay. and that's and, gonna and
1: happen. Sorry, can, can you just explain why the Fed pivot would it cause energy price inflation to skyrocket? Oh
0: yeah, because because you're gonna be stimulating the economy in by cutting rates into um into declining oil supplies.
1: Got it. Okay.
0: Yeah. So now, you know, it's when I look at that, I, I hear, I say, okay, great. What long bonds do you want to own? If I told you oil is going to be, you know, 120 under that scenario. And the answer is probably none of them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Because if you look at inflation break evens against oil prices, it's like, you know, five year U S inflation break evens against oil. It's like perfect correlation and oil's going up. So it's like, and, and Powell and the white house SPR releases, have broken US shale. And US shale was 90% of oil production growth over the last 10 years. They don't know what they did. They don't realize it. It was, it was, I I recently called it the, the piece de resistance of Pennywise pound foolish policies after 35 years of Pennywise pound foolish policies.
1: Okay, and, and just to kind of pile on that particular um worry spot, uh, you know, we've had uh Oil and natural resource uh, specialists on this program a fair amount, and they have all said that we have underinvested in capex in this space for a long time, anyways. Um, but now, in the past couple of years, with the whole you know green uh, green movement and whatnot, the fossil fuel companies have been getting the message from Washington that like, hey, we kind of want to put you guys out of business. So they have a they've had a real disincentive to continue to invest because they don't know if they're going to what the conditions are going to be like for them to get a return off any big investments they're making today. So, you know, as, as Rick Rule has said several times in this program, he's like, even if demand just stays flat for the next decade, which it won't, it's going to go up. But even if it just stayed flat, we are already going to have pretty big shortages of a lot of these, you know, well, certainly oil, but but a lot of other key resources. Um, because of decisions made five, 10, 15 years ago to not invest, right? So it's it's just going to compound what you're talking about, likely to compound what you're talking about.
0: And this is this is why it's so destabilizing. Um, is yeah, if you look at US oil prices relative to five-year bond break-evens, you know, your in inflation break-evens, right? Uh they're like one to one. They're very tightly correlated. So if oil goes up, bonds are going down. Like that, okay. <laughs> that's, and and so that's the issue. So, you know, and we had some control over that while we had a shale industry, but thanks to Powell and thanks to Biden, they just put a bullet in the shale industry's ability to grow production for the next two, three years. So guess who's in charge of oil now for the next two to three years? Putin. What do you think he wants to do to the U.S. bond market? You think he right. wants the U.S. bond market to have a good time?
1: No. Come on. Yeah, No. Got it. And just for folks to understand, the reason why I talked about how the administration is sort of sending signals to the the, the oil industry that, like, look, you know, we want to try to replace you guys over time with green alternatives. The reason why you're mentioning Powell killing the shale fields, as I understand it, is it it, it really what, what enabled the share revolution to happen in many ways was um, the cheap. Credit cheap that money. was out there.
0: Yeah, there were three things to show, right? It was it was the the lab steerable lateral technology that really allowed productivity to rise. It was expensive oil, which was a function of cheap money, and it was cheap money. Um and then you know, uh cheap money's they, gone. Yeah. <laughs> the the cheap money's gone. And there's some geological issues here as well. Um, you know, the the uh the the A locations are largely gone at these price ranges of oil uh mm-hmm. you know at the A fracking locations you're down to your B and C fracking locations that they just aren't as productive which means okay. your break even costs go up so uh that's that's the connection that most there, there's you know part of what I do at FFTT is try to go across silos right there's silo and so there's like the siloed bond world that's looking at you know back to your original your, your original question of like what would i say to them they're in their silo and they're saying, yeah, hey, every other time they break something then people bid these bonds. And the people who are over here in the energy silo are going, uh, guys, like there's no friggin' supply growth. Like and, and, you know, something we've noted historically, again, I said 90 percent of global oil production growth roughly has come from shale over the last 10 years. So if we take that offline, if they just stop drilling, U.S. oil shale is going to fall by 20 to 30 percent annually uh, after a bit of a lag rig count has rolled over the thing that the people on the bond side aren't getting is that the worst recessions in history going back 70 years saw global oil demand fall by four percent in 1980 as nasty as that recession was global oil demand only fell four in 2020 when we shut the friggin economy down globally basically global oil demand fell eight percent and i just said 90 percent of global oil production growth over the last 10 years is going to fall 20 to 30 percent on a sustained basis this so like the the energy silos going uh guys guys hello mcfly and the bond guys are like hey they're gonna break something and then and and they might be right and that's why i say it, it's a trade it's it's picking up nickel in front of a steamroller because they might very well be right and then enter the energy silo is going to take over and enters going to be 150 160 170 180 and Like there's no long-term bond you want to own. If if I said oil is going to be 150 a year from now, which would show me the list of long-term bonds you want to own? The answer is none of them, not at these yields.
1: All right, got it. And and I think you just answered this, but but there are people that would raise the question. Well, okay, look, if these if this high cost of capital, these high rates gets to the point where um, things are breaking, right? And and we finally you intimated this earlier, but I, I would love to talk about it with you a bit. We, we finally start really seeing the lag effects arrive in full force, right? A, l- a lot of the, the stimulus that you and I talked about um, earlier, right? That they came from the treasury and the deficit spending this year, the, this, the, the stimulus that wasn't really on the radar in 2022, right? Um, it pushed out the recession that everybody thought was going to come. Right. But did it, did it, did it, Dissipate the recession, or did it just push it off into the future? I, I think you would say, correct me if I'm wrong. It just delayed it. The lag effects are going to come; they're going to they're going to be big and real. um So, could that throw the economy into a substantial recession? And if so, people would say, "Well, that will bring down demand for oil, and we won't have to worry about high oil prices." But what I just heard you say is, "Is like, eh, not really. I mean, recessions don't necessarily knock oil demand down as much as you think." Then again, you know the relationship between demand and price and oil sometimes is a little wonky. So anyways, what are your thoughts on all that?
0: It would depend on the speed of the recession versus the speed of the decline in oil supplies. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So ultimately, the decline in oil supplies is going to win. Uh, but initially, absolutely. I mean, we saw that in, in April 2020. Oil prices went negative. Um, that 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 kind of thing can happen, but it's not sustainable for a number of reasons, and this this gets back to the point too that I think on the bond side, people aren't paying enough attention to is the US net international investment position, right? So let's say they're successful in getting oil prices down. Let's say they fight inflation, they get the dollar up. Well, the dollar going up is gonna force foreigners around the world, as we are seeing, to sell dollar assets to buy dollars to get dollars, to service dollar-denominated debt. Well, foreigners own $7.5 trillion in U.S. Treasuries. And we know the U.S. Treasury needs to place uh, just short of $1.9 trillion in the second half of this year alone. Who's a buyer? Who's a buyer for, for that amount of paper? Not the banks anymore. They were buying, they and the Fed were the buyers for the last two, three years. Banks are out, Fed's out. So what are we going to do? Simple. We're going to find the rate where there's buyers. But that doesn't make bonds go down. And that's like, it's literally happening on people's screens and they just refuse to believe it.
1: Yeah. Because it's never happened
0: this way before because they're ignoring the net international investment position. You know, the thing that people are missing is that up to 2008, the U.S. net international investment position was never more than negative 10 to 12 percent of GDP. In 1989, when Japan blew up, right, you know, peaked and rolled over. U.S. net international investment position was negative 2% of GDP. U.S. debt to GDP was 50%. U.S. debt to GDP is 120%, and the net international investment position is negative 65% of GDP. It means foreigners own $18 trillion net, not gross, net of assets they can sell if the dollar gets too strong. And they will sell them, and they are selling them. And when you need cash, what do you sell? You don't sell what you want to, you sell what you can What can you sell? Treasuries, they Got have it.
1: seven and a half to go, seven and a half trillion. So the downward pressure from the sales. Um, let me. I, I hesitate to ask this question because it opens such a massive door that we don't have time for in this discussion. <laughs> <laughs> um, but your your uh, your your good uh, thought opponent on Twitter. Uh, Brent Johnson, you know, has the dollar milkshake theory. It's actually been a good while since I've talked to Brent. So, you know, he may have evolved his thinking and and, and I may be unaware of it. But from previous conversations with him, you know, he has said, um, look, a lot of those same issues are going to be impacting a lot of other countries as well. And, you know, if there if there is a global recession, if there are hard times, you know, a lot of countries are in even worse shape than us. And when people get scared, um, both of you have the Euro-dollar dynamics that that are pushing uh, capital towards the U.S. as Euro-dollar loans start defaulting or whatnot. But, um, but he would generally say, yeah, you know, in times of panic, capital runs to safety. And even though there's lots of issues, you know, are there better deep liquid markets out there than U.S. treasuries? And you know, could a lot of the concerns you're talking about still get just sort of washed over by just panicked capital around the rest of the world flowing in rather than net selling our treasuries? What would your capital's would you like? already here?
0: That's that's the net he's been exactly right. They, when I say the net international investment position of the US has gone from negative 10 in 08 to negative 70, you know, two years ago. Um that's that's the capital flowing here. Okay. That's see, see if you're so you're saying
1: that that flight to safety has already happened. It's all here now.
0: It's all here. It's all here. We've been hawking our our family silver for you know cheap stuff from China. So I think one of our primary disagreements. Now he will say, well, relative to others, yeah. Look, if you want to structure you know, like he will say, um, the others are in more trouble. Yeah, exactly. And and I totally agree. What are they going to do? Where my, where our views disagree is, yes, others are more in trouble. What are they gonna do? They need dollars. Yes, we agree. Okay, what are they gonna do? They're gonna sell their dollar assets. Like, he keeps saying the capital is gonna flow here. Yes, some capital will flow here, but on net, there is no capital to flow here. It's already here, and they need dollars. They don't need Apple. They don't need treasuries. They need dollars. And so they will sell Apple and treasuries and real estate, et cetera, to get those dollars. And you can see this unwinding in the other direction. Number one, you can see it in the net international investment position. Since 2021, it's gone from negative 70 to negative 65. So literally December of 21, it was negative 70. It's now negative 65. So just unwinding five points of net international investment position as a percent of GDP, look what it's done to the treasury market. We had the worst year in the treasury market. We had the worst bond market in 150 years last year. That was five points. Now we have another 65 points to get back to where we were in Japan. The Fed cra- the Fed breaks way before that.
1: Okay, great. And, and on that point, I want to share my screen here for a second um, with a chart that you tweeted out the other day. Can you see the chart here, Luke?
0: Yeah. Full credit to that goes to Mike Green uh, at Prof Plum. Uh, Bob Elliott retweeted that. It was a piece from uh, a piece that Mike Green had publicly available uh over the weekend. But yeah. Okay.
1: So this this shows what you were talking about. Um and it it really, you know it it it, it visualizes the the sea change that's gone on here that you were just talking about. So is there anything else on top of this that you want to mention? Because you're right. I mean right now the the Treasury market is, you know, it's revolting. <laughs>
0: And it's going to keep them all. The beatings in the treasury market at the long end are going to continue until the Fed, until the dollars weaken meaningfully, full stop. That's it. You weaken the dollar, treasuries will get better. But if you weaken it too much, that'll create a problem too. But for the moment, the beatings in the treasury market will continue until the, uh, at the long end, until the dollars weaken meaningfully. It, it, to me, this chart, and I tweeted about it this weekend, uh, this chart shows you when the U.S. went into fiscal dominance, when the market began, forget about when the U.S. went into fiscal dominance, this chart shows you when the market began discounting the U.S. going into fiscal dominance, which is the U.S. can't pay its debt without the Fed printing the money.
1: Okay, so, um, I mean, this this is a big deal uh, in the way in which you're, you're portraying it. Um, there's an old term from the 80s, <laughs> that uh, we hadn't heard for a long time, but, you know, the bond vigilantes, right. It's, it's, it's when the bond market kind of wakes up and says, Hey, you know um, I don't really believe what you policymakers are selling me. And and I'm going to start taking yields, you know, higher because I want to be compensated for the greater risk that I see in the system. Um, And so, you know, basically that's what you're saying is going on here. Um, well, I would, in- I would add, I would
0: add that I think, you know when these two lines were running together, those what the bond vigilantes are telling you, right? Uh, now they're telling you the United States is Argentina, because what they're telling you is the rates are going up, and U.S. government can't afford that. They're going to print the difference. So what do you do when structurally? You know, I'm not talking about making a trade for bonds here. Or there, I'm talking about you run 200 billion dollars your sovereign wealth fund, and the United States starts raising rates like that. And you do the math. It's not hard math. It's sixth grade math. That's times rate times whatever else they're spending on times receipts. You make a pretty basic adjustment about the interest rate sensitivity of the U.S. government and their tax receipts. And you go. They can't afford those rates without printing the money when you're running. You know, you want to run 200 million and you want to try to trade it. Hey, God bless you. Good luck. You are running 200 billion. You know what you do? you buy stocks. You buy stocks and you sell bonds, just like that chart shows. Because stocks will hedge your inflation and bonds will get killed on a real basis. That's what that chart is telling me. Okay,
1: all right. Um, just to let you know, I'm I'm only on bullet number three of like 15 that I- <laughs>
0: <which is laughs> We can go for a bit, of, we're good. I'm, that's I'm, a sign
1: I'm of a great discussion. So, um, well, let me wrap a couple of questions together
0: here. Um,
1: Uh, how much higher do you see him going from here um and and, and let me kind of wrap into that too how uh, how likely do you think it is that the fed will will win the inflation war right because once <laughs> w- once the fed has inflation down to 2% it's got a lot more leeway right um but it it, it inflation is still sort of sticky right i i've sort of brought up the Pareto principle where we're presumably maybe the the easy 80% has been done. Now it's the hard 20, right? Um, so inflation and knock on effective interest rates, you know, what, what do you think?
0: How, how so do I think they will be successful getting back to two? No, uh, okay. I think there's a reason why Jason Furman, who was Obama's uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, was in the Wall Street Journal with an op-ed today saying we should, the Fed should increase their inflation target to three.
1: To three, right. and Paul, just call Krugman, it done, <laughs> mission accomplished.
0: And Paul Krugman saying, "Hey, it's a good idea to just go to three. Mm-hmm. They March told us they can't go to two unless they're willing to stand aside and let the banking system come unhinged, and let the treasury market really dysfunction. And if they're not willing to do that, then they're not going to be able to probably you know, they're not going to be able to get back to two.
1: OK, so just to be clear, do you think that we are in a secularly higher era of inflation looking out over the next decade plus than what Americans have been accustomed to for the past couple of decades? Oh, my God, absolutely.
0: Like, yes, 100 okay. times,
1: yes. No brainer. I, OK,
0: it, it's, a, it's a no brainer, right? Like, I mean, you know, the article yesterday in The Wall Street Journal, you know, for you know, the, the 40 year run of China's economic miracles over great. Maybe, maybe not. Let's say it is. What's the correlate of that? Right. Forty-year run of Chinese disinflation to the U.S. bond markets over.
1: Right. No more cheap stuff. No more cheap services. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. Uh, yeah. Exactly. All right. So similarly, on on the cost of capital side of things, um, interest rates. They were talking, I think, the ten years, what like four and four point three percent or something like that. Yeah, um, we're at like five that. and a quarter, like I said, on the federal funds rate. Um, the Fed is is guiding us that they're almost done, maybe maybe even done cutting, um, but but they're keeping the door open for at least one more rate hike. Um, do you think that that's likely? Do you think nope, this sucker's going a lot higher for a lot of the issues that you mentioned at the beginning of the discussion here, um, or you know, do you think they they move the uh, Inflation target to 3%, mission accomplished. Now we can pivot.
0: <laughs> I think they probably go higher. Um, and the reason I think they go higher, and it, it's ironic, it's, it's going to ultimately completely discredit them. Uh, raising rates is going to discredit them. But the reason I think that is, is I think they're losing control on oil now. Oil, I think, is going to go 85, 90, 100. 105 whatever uh and i think e- with that with the with the easiest comps behind you tougher comps coming on inflation you're going to start seeing inflation pick back up uh and the us has no ability to control it shale's rolling over spr who knows where that is but you know they they've largely run that down that's that's not
1: and I'm, and I'm sorry to interject just to make sure we understand is your confidence that oil is going to go higher in the relatively near future, um, are you tying that specifically to Fed policy, meaning the more expensive it is to borrow, the harder it is for drillers to drill? You've already talked about productions decreasing too, so that's making things even worse. But is it sort of a, a direct relationship between cost of capital and output? Is that is that why you're so confident that if they, they keep hiking, can shelves?
0: I had a conversation with a, a friend of mine, Graybeard, uh who was, you know, trading euro dollar markets in the 70s. Um, and he goes, Luke, what's going to be really interesting is when it starts happening, if they go too far, you'll get what you had in the 70s, which is look, finding and exploring and 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 drilling for oil is risky and capital intensive. There's a high cost of capital. And in an administration that doesn't really want you doing it. So if you're an oil producer, why go through all that hassle when well, you can just take your cash and put it in treasuries for three months at six? Exactly. Yeah. I'm not drilling. I'll make six percent risk-free. Except if they all start doing that, oil production is going to fall at 20, 30% a year in the in the US. And guess what? As bad as China is, China's oil oil imports are rising double digits. They're on set for another record year of oil imports. India's oil consumption, India's booming, is what I hear.
1: But that's all coming from cheap Russia supply, right?
0: Another own goal um, uh, by by the US administration. Uh, Indian oil consumption is one fifteenth of the United States. One fifteenth with three times the population. China's is still only one fifth. And they're the biggest oil importer in the world. And the Fed is encouraging shale to not drill. And we're the biggest marginal producer over the last, like, it it is not well understood that the U.S. ran, there was a gambit. Raise rates, strengthen the dollar, cap oil with the SPR, and hope Russia breaks before U.S. shale rolls over and before the U.S. banking system breaks. And yes, Russia is hurting. Yes, the ruble's down to 95, you know, up from 100, but it went down back to 100, whatever. Russia's not breaking. Like, you know, shale rolling over is very inflationary, very inflationary. Deficits are inflationary. China's sort of the cheap stuff from China. Deglobalization, all this like everything is on one side of it and everybody just wants to buy long-term bonds because for 40 years buying long-term bonds worked. I don't I don't understand it.
1: Okay. All right. Well, we're going to get in a moment to what you like. One thing I I just want to mention on this whole shale thing, because it's another kind of nail in the coffin uh, in terms of supply is um, shale wells deplete asymptotically, um, unlike conventional wells, which deplete on a bell curve, right? So conventional oil well has a much longer lifespan. Uh, There's this thing called the red queen syndrome where, where you're drilling for shale, where you have to keep drilling more and more to keep production where it is, because your early wells are just asymptotically running out of supply. Um, so it just means to your point, like when when we compromise production, it falls off much faster in a shale field uh, than it would, you know, say back in the '70s when we we were having. Or if you're, or if you're Russia, or if you're
0: Russia's oil production,
1: right? Or if you're Russia's exactly, which was yeah. a so- major
0: flaw in the whole U.S. policy, and it's it's fascinating, Adam nine out of ten discussions I have with people on Twitter, et cetera, uh, that want to buy bonds, they say, well, the U.S. is the biggest oil producer in the world. And that's the extent of the discussion. Like, no, 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 you don't understand the geology. What do you mean? They don't understand that geology. Most of these bonds don't understand that geology. If they did, again, it's that siloing, right? The oil guys are like, hello, McFly, there's a problem coming here. And the bond guys are like, no, 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 deflation's coming. Great. Let me buy the long end.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it might I mean, be a
0: trade. There might be a trade there, but like it's nickels yeah. in front of steam. Obviously.
1: Well, and we've talked about this a lot over the years. I mean, it, you have people that kind of look at their, and the Fed's probably the most guilty of this than anybody else, but they look at the economy or certain elements as closed systems and they don't look at them as the other systems that they depend on to work. So why is Luke spending so much time talking about? Oil industry? Well, because without energy, you cannot power an economy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly it. And that is a major, major oversight. And for a long, long time, dollars equal energy, you know, treasuries equal energy. And we are seeing in real time the disconnection between the dollar and energy and treasuries and energy. Uh, You're seeing people circumvent that, right? When China says, hey, we just signed a 27-year LNG deal with the UAE or uh, with Qatar, excuse me. And then they sign a second one. Like the way the world worked from 1971, at least up until recently, was China sells crap to the US, US sends dollars, China takes the dollars, they buy treasuries and they hold those treasuries for a rainy day when they need to buy LNG. Right, now what are they doing? They're going straight to the source and going here. You take the dollars and you promise us we will pre-buy a 27-year supply of LNG. And then we'll do it again because we would rather own a 27-year supply of LNG in the ground than we would the equivalent amount of treasuries. They're telling you what's happening. Yeah. People just refuse to see it. And that then flips over. Well, who buys those treasuries? Fed, banks. Well, who buys them if the Fed, and the banks don't? Nobody. The rates go up until we figure out who's going to buy them. Right. And we hope that the, that rate, that clearing rate, doesn't bankrupt the U.S. government. Oops, receipts are below true, true interest expense already. So we're, that's why I would say we're on the seventh day then.
1: So do you see us then, um, is the Japanification of the U.S. inevitable at this point? <laughs> Dude.
0: Yeah, but it's going to, yeah, the Japanification of the U.S. is going to feel like the Argentinaization.
1: Our interview with Luke will continue over in part two, which will be released on this channel as soon as we're finished editing it. To be notified when it comes out, subscribe to this channel if you haven't already by clicking on the subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And be sure to hit the like button too while you're down there. Also, if you haven't yet heard, tickets for the Wealthion Fall Conference have just gone on sale at the early bird price discount of nearly 30% off the standard price. And alumni of our previous conferences get an additional 15% discount on top of that. To lock in these low prices while they last, go to Wealthion.com conference. And if the challenges Luke has detailed in this interview, have you feeling a little vulnerable about the prospects for your wealth, then consider scheduling a free, no strings attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your wealth, keeping in mind the trends, risks, and opportunities Luke has mentioned here. Just go to wealthion.com and we'll help set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you next over in part two of our interview with Luke Groman. Music